We're going to look at the strip of land that God gave Abraham and from which Jesus will one day reign over the whole world. Let's make this music stand, uh, the Sea of Galilee, which is a big round lake in the northern part of Israel. And then coming down out of it, there's a river, which is called what? Jordan River, right? And it flows into the Dead Sea, right? So Jerusalem is roughly about here. Uh, that's obviously a river valley. So you come up to a spine or a ridge line that runs north and south. And that ridge line runs south. And all of this is the Mediterranean Sea out here. Okay? So we're going to use that as our base map and walk through the Old Testament. But uh, let me get my cheat sheet here. We'll get started. You know, the Bible, if you look at the slide, is a big book. And it's inspired, it's indispensable, it's inerrant. It tells us what we need to know about connecting with God and preparing for something much bigger than what we're doing right now. B-I-B-L-E, basic instructions before leaving earth. That's kind of what it is. And as Peter tells us in his second letter in the New Testament, there are some things in the Bible hard to understand, right? Hey, you came in a good week, buddy. Uh, now, now suddenly I feel very nervous. I got to do. I wish I'd prepared something. Uh, yeah, Second Peter says there are some things in the Bible that are hard to understand, and there are. But the main things are plain things. The main thing the Bible is trying to teach us. The main things are plain things, and they get repeated a lot. And I think one of the things you want to learn as you study the Bible is it's complicated. But the main things you can get, God's going to give you a grace apparatus for perception. And the big book breaks down into only two parts, really. The Old Testament, New Testament. You're looking at your table of contents. The first 17 books in your table of contents for the Old Testament tells one continuous story. Those 17 books are the, the backbone for all the other books. They all The other books fit into that timeline somewhere. And we're going to walk through that uh, today. Now, um, let's start with the book of Genesis, right? Is that the first one in your table of contents? If not, you've got a bad, you need to get a new Bible. Yeah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and so on. Uh, Genesis is 50 chapters, but it only breaks down in two parts. First part of the book, chapters 1 through 11, talk about four primeval events. The next part of the book, 12 through 50, talks about four patriarchal persons. And the four primeval events that Genesis 1 through 11 talk about, Phyllis, are creation, the fall, the flood, and the Tower of Babel. And we see God uh, creating human beings as individuals, Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, right? And uh, almost immediately they rebel, they're insubordinate to God, which causes not just problems for them, but met metaphysically ruins the universe. One reason little girls get diabetes and it throws the whole family into turmoil because we live in a broken universe. God's going to fix it, and the story of the Bible tells us how that's going to happen, so that's important to remember. So we've got two parts of Genesis, creation, fall, flood, Babel. Creation, Adam and Eve, the fall. Really, Eve slipped, but Adam fell, and he fell hard, and it affects us to this day. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Uh, the flood happens generations later. And one thing you learn in the Old Testament is you do see God judging evil. But here's the principle. God's justice is not pretty. 
But God's justice is always preceded by God's grace. Gives lots of warnings, lots of warnings before the hammer comes down. So creation, fall, flood, Babel is where we've got the, the human race trying to not spread out as they've been told after the flood, but tries to centralize, tries to control everything. They try to build a tower that they can kind of become gods into themselves. And God mixes up the languages so people disperse. So that's the first part of Genesis real quick. Creation, fall, flood, Babel. Can you repeat that? Creation, fall, flood, Babel. Let's do it again. I can't hear you. This, and those events are real and they happen literally, but they're very unique. You can't really produce a lot of that in the laboratory. The real story of the Old Testament starts in Genesis 12. And here we are in Israel, right? We've got the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River, the Dead Sea. The story of the Bible begins in Iraq. In Genesis chapter 12, let's go to Iraq, okay? Iraq is really far east and a little bit of south, at least where, where Abraham was called was in a place called Ur of the Chaldees. So a guy, a pagan guy in Ur of the Chaldees is called by God to go to a land tract because God is going to bless the whole world through him and his progeny. Okay. And so Abram, Abraham gets this command and he just flat goes, man. And Four people go on this trek to get to the promised land. Now watch me. If you can see where I am, I'm in Ur of the Chaldees, right? And there's the land track there where we got the open area. And did somebody teach you the shortest distance between two points is a straight line? So why didn't Abraham just go straight? Because everything between me and basically the uh, the podium is desert. You couldn't make it. You basically couldn't make it straight line. So they followed the rivers, the Tigris-Euphrates rivers. So Abraham, watch this. Can you remember the word salt? The four people that go at God's prompting and Abraham's leading is Sarah, his wife, Abraham, Lot, his nephew, and Terah, Abraham's dad. And they go up at a 45 degree angle following the rivers so they can have something to eat, something to drink. And they come up here to a place called Haran. And in Haran, Abraham's dad, Terah, dies. You know what? Everybody's mortal. Everybody dies. Now, somebody once said, no great man is ever appreciated until he's dead. And I say to you, appreciate me now before it's too late. Okay. Uh, yeah, so we've got uh, Abraham, Sarah, Abraham, and Lot now proceeding down from the north into the promised land. And Abraham spends the rest of his life Wandering around, never builds a house, wandering around. He's no, he's nomadic. He's got animals and he wanders around. But the important thing about Abraham is once he gets to the promised land in Genesis 15, God cuts a covenant, signs a contract with him, just flat saying, this is yours. This is your progenies. You're going to produce a great nation, even though you and your wife are too old to have kids. And I'm going to bless the world through your seed singular, who we know Jesus Christ is a descendant of Abraham, uh, Isaac, Jacob, etc. This is why the Gospel of Matthew in the New Testament starts with what, Doug? What's the first 18 verses of the Gospel of Matthew? A genealogy? Why is Matthew the most Jewish gospel talking about genealogy? 
Because he wants to go back to the story where Abraham's called, Abraham goes, Abraham enters into a special covenant with God. We'll share what that looks like relative to Moses' promise with God or covenant with God in a minute. But yeah, now by the way, on your hand out there, you got your bulletin insert there. Yeah. I should, I hate it when I do stuff like this, but this part here where it says Genesis 12 through 50, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob 12, that should be bolded. That's at the same level as Genesis 1 through 11, creation, fall, flood, Babel. And let's summarize, that should be bolded. I'm not sure how you're going to do that, but after the fact, but my mistake. But let's think about the four uh, patriarchal uh, individuals that are described in this section. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Jacob's 12 sons with an emphasis on Joseph, right? That's the rest of the book of Genesis. So let's uh, summarize Genesis now. Creation, fall, flood, Babel. Creation, fall, flood, Babel. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the 12. Yeah, God enters into this covenant with Abraham, promises him the land, seed, and the blessing. And you know what? They wait for decades. And it gets to the point where Abraham's like 99 and Sarah's like 80 years old. And they just don't think she's going to have a baby. The old-fashioned way, you know? So Abraham ends up taking a second lady. This sounds like Harvey Weinstein or something. Uh Taking a second lady as a concubine, which means a lower-level wife. And people think, man, he's a pig, he's a slob. But you know who suggested it and encouraged it? Sarah did. Because they're thinking, God's promised us a kid, and if you take her as a secondary wife and have a, a son through him, then that's going to let God fulfill his promises. And one of the lessons of the Bible is, God doesn't need your help. He doesn't need Billy Graham's help. And he certainly doesn't need my help. He can get he can get by fine without us, but he wants us to serve. He gives us the privilege of serving him. So yeah, so miraculously, supernormally, uh, this elderly couple conceives. They have a son. His name is Isaac, right? And Isaac has a son named Jacob. Jacob means deceiver, right? Uh, his name is changed to Israel, means to wrestle. To hold on to something because he held on to the promises of God. Uh, Jacob was kind of a slimy guy. He actually kind of stole his birthright right from his uh, twin brother. I was always fascinated by twins, and now we have two sets of twins and our grandchildren, and it's boy, it's fun to watch them interact. But yeah, Jacob is the guy, and he has twelve sons, and you know he he kind of did what every parent's not supposed to do. He's got all these boys, and he had a favorite. And it was very obvious who his favorite was. His favorite was who. Joseph. So, you know, you may know the story, but it's interesting, Scott. You know, you've got two whole chapters in Genesis, Genesis 1 and 2, which talks about the whole creation of the universe as we know it now. You have 13 chapters that talk about Joseph. Which one's, what topic is Moses emphasizing in Genesis? Creation or Joseph? A lot more Joseph. That's called a lot of proportion. Yeah. So, you know, Joseph is despised by his brothers. He interacts with his brothers. His brothers want to kill him. Then they say, well, I got a better plan. Let's just sell him to these slave traders. We can make some money and they'll kill him down in Egypt. Eventually he'll die, you know, being overworked. And God works through all this stuff. He ends up in Egypt, lands on his feet, gets an inside job, not a lot of heavy lifting. Then he's accused of sexual harassment because his master's wife is trying to seduce him and he is too 
you know, uh, have too much integrity to submit to all that. And so since she can't have it, uh, have him, she accuses him of all kinds of nasty things. He ends up in prison. Uh, there's a little, and, and again, you know, he's been told in a dream that eventually his whole family is going to be dependent on him and will in effect bow down to him. But it looks like he's going to get killed in an Egyptian prison, right? But, and there's a little statement that says, and two years later, when things are happening, so he's sitting there for two years, doesn't look like David. Doesn't look like anything's happening in Joseph's life for at least two years in prison. Looks like if anything, God's forgotten about him. Because God has not texted, tweeted, or anything. You know? Sometimes, sometimes you just have to tie a knot at the end of your rope and hold on in faith, right? Because you never have enough information to legitimately second guess God. So anyway, Joseph eventually gets sprung from prison because he has the ability to interpret dreams God given. And he tells the Pharaoh that dream you're having about the, uh, fat cows beaten, being eaten up by the skinny cows means you're going to have seven years of great harvests. Is that the plural of harvests? And then you're going to have seven years of no harvests. And so you need to store your grain the next seven years. And Pharaoh puts Joseph in, start of that, in charge of that process, basically making Joseph the prime minister of Egypt. And guess what happens? Seven years later, when the food stopped growing in the whole area, his family back in Israel. Oh, by the way, I'm supposed to be walking through the Bible, aren't I? Okay. Yeah. So Joseph is basically here with his brothers. They sell him into slavery. And so now we go to Egypt. So now we've got Joseph in Egypt with all the travails we talked about. And he eventually becomes the prime minister over the food distribution program. Meanwhile, back at the ranch at Ponderosa, Jacob and the, the eleven are saying, we're running out of food, but we hear they're selling food in Egypt. So the family goes down there a couple different times. Joseph reveals himself eventually to the brothers, and boy, do they think they're going to get it, because they all sold him in slavery. But showing amazing super grace, Joseph saves the family. Now, this is the family that God told Abraham would become a multi-million people nation through whom the Messiah would come. So that's important. This thing keeps going. But the to me, the most amazing verse in Genesis is not in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. Although if you believe that, everything else in the Bible is possible, right? No problem. But the most amazing verse in Genesis to me is chapter 50, verse 20, where after the brothers reconcile with Joseph and he shows no revenge, he's happy to provide for them. He says, you intended this for evil, but God intended it for good. And look how this all worked out. So at the end of the book of Genesis, You've got 70 Jewish people in the land of Egypt, in the breadbasket, uh, doing well. And yet that promise that God gave to Abraham seems a long way away. Now, the next book of the Bible is Exodus, right? Fast forward 400 years after a couple of mentions about Joseph and the family of 70 with Jacob uh, being in Egypt. You fast forward 400 years and those 70 people are now over a million. And these are all illegal aliens in the new uh, government's position. So they have been enslaved. They didn't build the pyramids. The pyramids were built before Joseph got there initially, but they built a lot of things in Egypt for them. Slave labor can do a lot of good things for you. You know, it's a horrible institution. Is the Bible in favor of slavery? You heard people say that. No. I mean, the Jews were in slavery. That was a bad thing. But yeah, so God raises up after 400 years of Egyptian bondage, a deliverer. You've seen the movie. He's the prince of Egypt. Who, Who are we talking about? About Moses. Moses lives to be 120 years old. And I remember when Bob Shalit came to faith, he was 80. 
And I said, Bob, don't worry. God didn't do anything with Moses until he turned 80. So there's hope for those, those of us who are almost 80. But yeah, for uh, 40 years, long story short, this little Jewish slave boy becomes the adopted son of the Pharaoh's daughter, and he grows up as the prince of Egypt. But toward the end of that 40 years, he sees an Egyptian task taskmaster beating savagely a Jewish slave. So what does Moses do about it? And he is big and strong and smart and multilingual. What does Moses do about it? I don't think he's trying to kill him. He just punches him so hard. He doesn't just knock him cold. He kills the Egyptian slave master. This Jewish slave runs away, and Moses buries the body in the sands of Egypt, hoping nobody finds out. Next day, he's looking around at everything, and he hears rumors. Is he going to kill us too? That's the guy who killed that Egyptian yesterday. He's hoping nobody knows everybody, except maybe the Pharaoh knows at this point. So he's about 40 at that point. What does he have to do? He has to go hide. He's a wanted murderer. And so he goes not to Egypt, but he goes to Midian, kind of over here. Ends up getting married, and he spends about 40 years wandering around following sheep, and that's going to become very important for him, because the last 40 years of his life, he and the Egyptian, uh, the uh, Exodus generation of Jews are going to wander around that same area. So Moses is the prince of Egypt in Egypt. He is a shepherd man, not a shepherd boy, in Midian. And then God appears to him in an amazing way. God appears to him in a burning bush. You don't get spontaneous combustion, but you do get odd lightning strikes or friction things where rocks hit each other because of different movements um, in that very arid, zero-humidity situation where you sometimes get what looks to be spontaneous combustion. But if a bush bursts into flames after all of the consumable part of the bush goes away the flame goes away right debbie you can take away the oxygen or the source right that bush keeps burning and a voice comes out of the bush basically saying in so many words go back to egypt and tell pharaoh to let my people go now why would god call those slaves his people remember what he said to abraham god doesn't forget we're 500 years after all that he remembers all that so what does moses say that sounds like a great idea let me think i'm an accused murderer in fact i am a murderer uh, I've been gone for 40 years. I'm a wanted man. I'm number one on the FBI wanted list. You want me to go back and tell President Pharaoh that he let go of all that free labor? So God kind of has to almost talk him into it. And, and Moses says, well, there's a lot of reasons I shouldn't do that. Number one, I'm a terrible public speaker. And what does God say? Uh, we'll, we'll get your brother to help you with that. We'll, I'll give you what you need. So after a little coaxing, Moses reluctantly, along with Aaron, goes to see the Pharaoh and uh, the Pharaoh doesn't want to let all these free people go. And so God has to send a series of ten plagues, judgments on the Egyptian system, which was a very corrupt, evil system, climaxed by the tenth one that is associated with a Jewish holiday called the Passover. The final plague had to do with a death angel, but for the Jewish folks who were forewarned and who slaughtered a lamb, blameless, put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of the home they were going to be in that night. And if they're in the house covered by the blood, the death angel did what? Passed over. That's why that's called the Passover. Okay, now watch this. After the tenth plague, the Passover event, Moses says, get out, the sooner the better, and we'll give you some of our stuff if you'll just leave. So they all go out. 
They're in Egypt, aren't they? Yeah. They go out. They go through the Red Sea, which God miraculously opens up because Pharaoh changes his mind. The army is chasing them. The waters fall on the Egyptian army, which sets them back for about 100 years. Historically, you can look it up. And then they proceed to a place at the bottom of this triangular-shaped peninsula east of Egypt called Sinai. What happens at Mount Sinai? Ten Commandments and the Law of Moses, it's called. But this is actually a covenant that God makes, not with the New Testament church, but with the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And let me show you what that means. Remember we said that God entered into a covenant with Abraham? Mentions it briefly in chapter 12. Uh, ratifies it in Genesis 15. The covenant, the promise that God made with Abraham is like a foundation slab for the whole salvific plan of God. It's an unconditional covenant. In fact, the form of it conforms exactly with the 15th century B.C. Uh, uh, Treaty of Grant, where a powerful king would graciously make certain concessions or blessings available to a lesser king. That's the Abrahamic promises. But now, 500 years later, we've got a million of Abraham's descendants have freely been hatched from slavery and are going to start a legitimate nation state now. And they need a constitution. The Mosaic Covenant, built on top of the foundation of the Abrahamic Covenant, is it like a constitution. It has civil and criminal laws. It has ceremonial laws. And it has moral laws. Those moral laws are timeless. But the point is, that, as it turns out, is exactly in the form of the Mosaic period, uh, ancient Near East treaty called a suzerainry vassal treaty. The suzerain was the big king. The vassal was a lesser king who was under the foot or under the control of the greater king. And these suzerain vassal treaties would talk about certain things. They're all laid out for us in the Pentateuch, in the first books of the Old Testament. And they stress blessings if you'll submit to your suzerain and discipline if you don't. And we'll talk about that more in a minute. But now that's there's a lot of theology there, but the main thing to see is God enters into a covenant with Abraham to bless the whole world through his seed, the Messiah. And then he enters into a special conditional covenant with his Old Testament people. And basically says, once you're in the land as a nation state, if you obey the Mosaic covenant as a nation, I'm going to bless you in the nation. You're going to have good crops, good weather, and no military issues to speak of. If you disobey me, you'll have increasing problems based on the depth and length of your regression leading up to and climaxing with military invasion and conquest. Okay, Now, we're in the book of Exodus. They get the law. They get the uh, the covenant with Moses. And then they're told to build a building. It's actually a tent called the tabernacle. The tabernacle was one of the parts of the Mosaic covenant. Under the Old Testament law, there was to be one physical central sanctuary where God would manifest his presence and the nation of Israel was to attract and shine the light so the nations would come to God. And at the end of the book of Exodus, Genesis Exodus, we have the construction of the tabernacle, this movable tent-like central sanctuary. Why are they going to need a movable central sanctuary? Where are they when they get the word to build the tabernacle, when they get the Mosaic law? Are they in Israel? Are they in the, the land tract God gave to Abraham? Where are they? They're over here, right? They're at Sinai. So they're not there yet. They're not there yet. They need a movable central sanctuary. It's called the tabernacle. 
And when you get to the last part of the book of Exodus, you've got the completion of the tabernacle and the glory of God entering the tabernacle. Okay? So that's good. Next book, Leviticus. The Levites and the priests need instructions as to what uh, sacrifices, rituals, and holidays to celebrate in and around the central sanctuary. That's what that book's about. Then the book of Numbers. Why is the book of Numbers called the book of Numbers? Because it has the number 13 in it, and it's unlucky. No, that's not what it, what it is. Watch this. So we're at, uh, we're at Sinai for almost a year, and then they get to go ahead, proceed toward the promised land, go to an oasis, just kind of due south and a little bit east of it, and prepare for the invasion. Because they're going to go conquer the promised land. But first they send in a set of spies, one from each of the 12 tribes. And when the spies come back, they'll say, everything God said about the land is, is good. It's, it's, it's beautiful. It's great. We can do great things with it. But the Canaanites are too big to hit. There's no way we can beat them. That's what 10 of the spies said. Joshua and Caleb, the other two tribes, the spies, you know what they said? The Canaanites are too big to miss. God said, go, go get them. Let's go get them. So you know what? The majority is not always right. In this case, you've got 10 saying we can't take it. They're too big. The enemies are too big. The obstacles are too, too immense. We can't do it. Then we've got Joshua and Caleb saying, let's go do it. God said, do it. We can go do it. And what happens? If you read the narrative in, in numbers, they, the entire nation, 1.5 million more or less, they cry all night long like somebody just rained on their parade. And they refuse to take the promised land. Now, this is the group that saw God open up the Red Sea and close it on the Egyptians. This idea that atheists would say, you know, if God would just do us a big miracle, everybody would believe. Everybody would trust in God. It doesn't matter what miracles people see. They can always explain them away or forget them. You know, if you've been a Christian very long and think about it, there's a lot of miraculous things God's done for you. But we take it for granted, man. We move on. We forget, don't we? So anyway, why is that book of Numbers called Numbers? Is it about 13? It's got nothing to do with 13. Watch this. What happens is, book of Numbers says you've got 603,550 men in the army at that point. So they're in this uh, oasis south of the land, perfect place to go invade the land. They, the nation says, no, we're not going to invade the land. With 603,550 soldiers. They don't do it. So what happens for the next 40 years? They wander around south of the land, in much of the area, Moses would have scattered out the previous 40 years as a sheep herder. So he knew the, his way around. And then at the end of the book of Numbers, as that Exodus generation has died out, their children, who are adults now, they go not to Kadesh Barnea, the uh, oasis, but they're on the plains of Moab, right about here. You're sitting on the plains of Moab. How's it feel? <laughs> it's a comfortable it's place, isn't it? Yeah. And so they're due east. They're going to go in and... Moses takes the census of their soldiers. They had 603,000 before. Forty years later, they got a different army, 601,000. They've got 2,000 fewer. Now, that's not a huge number, okay, different. But the point is, the generation that takes the promised land actually had a smaller army than the generation that refused because they didn't think they had enough resources. Look, Jan, do you believe God can do anything he wants you to accomplish? Not stuff he doesn't want you to accomplish. But like maybe you have a vision about a kindred community where we can serve all these widows and, you know, Brad, could we do it here? We might have like 20 people show up and say, but you better get a bigger venue because this thing's going to blow up in a good way. Yeah. And, and you didn't think that was going to happen necessarily. So, uh, now look at me. You know, when I first went in the ministry, I had no desire to become rich or famous. 
And uh, 35 years later, I'm right on track. It's working great. So it can work for you, right? So that's the book of Numbers. That book of Deuteronomy. Deuteros means two. You know, deuterium is that isotope of hydrogen with two things in the nucleus, uh, a proton and a neutron, right? Uh, and namas means law, second law. Now, sometimes people freak out when they find out the Ten Commandments appear in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. Why would God repeat the Ten Commandments? They're exactly the same. Because, yeah, that's exactly right. The plain things get repeated a lot, but the Ten Commandments initially in Exodus 20 are given when they're in Sinai to the Exodus generation. Right before Moses dies, as they're on the plains, this this 601,000 new generation army is in a staging area to go conquer the land under Joshua. The aging Moses goes over the covenant, the Mosaic covenant, this Susan Reed Vassal covenant form that God had given to Moses 40 years before. And at the core of that is the Ten Commandments. So he's Deuteronomy means the second giving of the law. It's the same law given to the second generation. Okay. Then the next book is Joshua. Who was Joshua? He was one of the two spies that said, they're too big to miss. Let's go get them. But nobody listened, right? So Joshua and Caleb, those are the two spies. They're the only living uh members of the first generation to go in. And Joshua is like George Washington. He's kind of the uh, leader at the front. And through a central slash, which cuts the Canaanite nations into two, to two parts. And then let me get this right, because I always get it wrong. Then a southern campaign, a northern campaign. In seven years, Israel effectively conquers the Canaanites. But it's very much like the war in Iraq. The war with Iraq, uh, March of 2003, it took us like about two weeks for the conventional force of the United States to destroy the conventional army of Iraq. That's all it took. I mean, it, we were, it's an awesome thing, you know, shock and awe. But did the war end after we defeated the conventional army? No. Little pockets of resistance, insurgents, terrorists remain. So the book of Joshua, and that generation may be one of the best, greatest spiritual generations in all of Old Testament Israel. They conquered the land in seven years. It wasn't easy, by the way. The promised land is not a metaphor for heaven. There are no Canaanites in heaven. There are no wars to fight in heaven. Okay, Promised land is a metaphor for the victorious spiritual life. You've got a lot of enemies to fight every day, right, in the, uh, in the victorious spiritual life. Anyway, Joshua conquers the land, and then we have the period of the judges. About 299 years of Judge Wapner in the people's court, right? The, the <laughs> The judges, right? Now, the judges really are local, tribal, uh, or regional leaders that have to deal with the insurgents for the most part. And some of the more famous judges are Gideon, Samson, and Deborah. You're going to hear people say the Old Testament is so anti-woman. They never respect women. Yeah, they do. Uh, they tell you when people do stupid things like Sarah did. Go ahead and marry my handmaiden. We can do God's thing our way. But you know what? When you get to somebody like Deborah, she's probably the smartest, most righteous person in the nation. That's why she takes the lead, because she earned it. And when you finish the book of Proverbs, at the end of the book of Proverbs, the book of biblical wisdom, who is extolled as the ideal person? The woman of Proverbs 31. Not a man, but a woman. According to Old Testament, the ideal person that we all ought to admire and aspire to be like is the ideal woman. So anyway, period of judges is a period kind of like in the United States. We had the uh, Articles of Confederation. There was no strong central government. Everybody was supposed to center on God 
at the tabernacle in the central area. Of, uh, still, they're working with that tent, but they're keeping it in one place, basically Shiloh. And that was supposed to work great, but it didn't work so great. And you have these cycles of prosperity, apostasy, apostasy from God, warnings, discipline, God raises up a judge, then they get into prosperity again. So you see this cycle happening multiple times in that period of 290 years. The last judge and the first king-anointed prophet was a guy named Samuel. So you go from the book of Judges. By the way, before we leave the book of Judges, one of the refrains of the book of Judges is, uh, there was no king in Israel during this time, so every man did what was right in his own eyes. That gets repeated a lot in the book of Judges. But there are exceptions. The book of Ruth talks about a prime exception to the moral degradation of Israel during the period of the judges. And Ruth wasn't even a Jew, right? She lived in Moab, comes across with her mother-in-law. The family had left because of a famine. Her husband dies. Naomi, her mother-in-law, and Ruth come into the promised land. Ruth makes the famous uh, commitment to to believe in, in Naomi's God. And that's a problem, though, because in Deuteronomy, we read, no Moabite shall ever be admitted to the worshiping community. And yet we're told she's a Moabite. How do you square that? When he says no Moabite can come and take part in the worshiping community, that's not an ethic, an ethnic label. That's a theological label. Anybody who worships the god Molech, the detestable god that offers up babies to the fire as they teach in Moab, you can't bring that kind of thinking in and mix it up with what we're saying. It's totally different. It's not saying ethnically Moab, Moabites can't come in, but anybody who buys the Moabite mindset, okay? So I always say, when is a Moabite like Ruth, no longer a Moabite, welcomed and lionized in the book of Ruth? When is a Moabite no longer a Moabite? When she becomes a proselyte to the true God. See, nobody is so bad they can't have salvation through faith in the Messiah who's being promised in the Old Testament been provided for us in the New Testament, okay? So, when you get to 1 Samuel, you enter into this period that I call the United Tribes of Israel. We've seen creation, fall, flood, Babel. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. 400 years later, Moses, the millions of folks in Egypt as slaves. They get out, miraculously, get the law, which is that smaller rectangle on top of the unconditional promise about Worldwide salvation for those who believe. Abraham believed this counted him for righteousness. They get the law. They set up to conquer the promised land. The generation that relief from, uh, got released from Egyptian bondage refuses to. They wander around for 40 years. Joshua takes the land, period of the judges. And now we're in the period of the United Tribes of Israel. There were three kings associated with that 120 year period. Saul, David, and, yeah. Saul, David, and Solomon. They all three reigned roughly 40 years each. And the most important one for our purposes is probably Solomon. Because Solomon is the guy in God's timing who's permitted to take that tabernacle, that tent, that central sanctuary that's movable, and build the temple in Jerusalem. That's important. It's called the first temple. Why is Solomon's temple called the first temple? Because there were two of them. First temple was built in roughly 960 BC, but would be destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 BC. For 70 years, we have no temple, then a second temple is built. We'll go back to that. But the United Tribes of Israel, 
And, uh, and when you see UTI, that reminds people of urinary tract infection, so I don't like to use that acronym. But that's where the monarchy starts. And really the plan was for God to be the king and then to be different, but they decided, you know, we'll serve you much better if we do it our way. So God said, I'm going to let you have what you want, but it's not ideal. Hold on. And we got Saul, who's a terrible king, as it turns out. David, who was a great king, but had some moral issues. Murder and adultery. And then Solomon, who uh, was the wisest person of all time, but he had some women issues too. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. 700. Now watch this. The Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, makes no effort to cover over the warts of the characters, does it? I mean, the writer doesn't have to tell you all that stuff about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You wouldn't believe some of the stuff they pull. But God can use all kinds of flawed raw material to accomplish his purposes. Okay, So Saul, uh, David, Solomon, Solomon builds the first temple. Okay, Now here's the bad news. Right after Solomon dies... The 12 tribes in Israel, United Tribes of Israel, they divide into two, tri- two, two different kingdoms. The northern kingdom is made up of 10 of the tribes, and it's called the nation of Israel. Judah and Benjamin, the other two tribes, set up a distinct uh, country, and there's basically a civil war that goes on, called the nation of Judah. Okay, Now, there's one central sanctuary, Linda, and it's in Jerusalem in the area conquered by the two tribes, controlled by the two tribes, Judah. So what are the ten tribes going to do? What should they have done? In humility, they should have come to worship at the central sanctuary for at least the three required feasts. They don't do that. They build because being convenient and not going to places that have spiritual cooties because all those, you know, those Judahites and the Benjamites, they're bad people because we have our own separate country now. They decided we're going to build two central sanctuaries. What God think about that? Not too much, but it was convenient and real popular. They had much bigger crowds at those two central sanctuaries than they'd have at Jerusalem from then on. But God's not so much into, he's more into truth than popularity. And the truth isn't always uh, easy. But anyway, those kingdoms divide and they interact with each other and with, uh, with other outside predator nations. But here's the thing. You know, a lot of your Old Testament, uh, Nancy, isn't the first 17 books. It's the last 17 books, which are the books of the prophets. And most of those prophets are interacting either with uh, with the northern kingdom, Amos, Hosea would be examples, or with both, Isaiah would be an example, or with the southern kingdom, Micah would be an example. These prophets, what do you think about when you hear prophecy? Prophecy thinks is when you think and predict something is going to happen in the future. That's So a prophet predicts stuff, right? Yeah, but a prophet's not just somebody who foretells the future, but who foretold the truth. Now, Israel in the Old Testament was living on the foundation of the promises made to Abraham and within that box called the Old Testament law. And God had said, once you're in the land, if you as a nation will obey the moral statutes of the law, like care for the poor, care for the widows, have justice, seek peace, uh, that kind of thing. Don't rip people off, either foreign people or your own folks at all. That kind of thing. The prophets were not just mainly predicting future things, although they do predict some future things, especially about Jesus. But they're basically like defense attorneys saying, you're violating the covenant. You're, you're violating the covenant. You're violating the Mosaic commandment as a nation. And God said, if we continue to do that, we're going to have increasing problems as discipline. Crop failures, uh, military invasions, 
leading up to and climax with military invasion and conquest. God's justice is never pretty, but God's justice is always preceded by God's grace. And when you read the prophets, sometimes it's hard to read. You read Micah, I mean, it's just scathing. Habakkuk, you know, Habakkuk basically says, God, why don't you do something? They're breaking. For generations, we've broken the law. And God says, I am doing something. And Habakkuk says, that's good. What are you doing? He says, I'm sending the Babylonians. He said, well, that's good because they deserve it. And he said, hold it. They're worse than we are. They're pagans. They're worse than we are. Well, that's okay. I got a plan for them too. I'm going to send the Medo-Persians to take care of them. He's just saying, and we tend to think the world started when we were born and it centers on us. And it doesn't. Okay. God has all these generations, all these changes of generations. Christ may not come back for another thousand years. He could come back this afternoon. But God's got the big picture, and we need to pray to have the big picture. But anyway, yeah, so the bad news is this ten-tribe nation called Israel falls to the Assyrians. These people were horrible, uh, just very cruel and despotic. In 722 B.C., and you can prove that historically by a bunch of different sources. Take the biblical source first, of course. There's a lot of historical evidence that that date's a hard date. Uh, Sennacherib, sound like... President Trump trying to pronounce something, you know, China. He over there, China, China. You know, he's going to start World War III just the way he says it. China, you know, Sennacherib. <laughs> I mean, uh, how you say stuff is important. Uh, yeah, Sennacherib comes in, and it, they were the most feared nation. Talk about shock and awe. You wouldn't believe what they would do to their prisoners. It's horrible. But they come in, conquer the northern kingdom. Well, that means God got defeated. No. God, through the prophets, had warned them for several hundred years, if you guys don't turn around and get, get the ship straight based on the Mosaic law, I'm going to allow this kind of thing to happen, okay? Now, after defeating Israel, guess what Sennacherib does, Cade? He goes beeline to Jerusalem and circles it with full intention of destroying them. It doesn't happen, okay? According to Isaiah, God sends a plague and like 180,000 soldiers are killed overnight. That, I don't have the exact number there, but it's a large, it's big. It's not 18. It's like 180,000, something like that. We have historical sources in the uh, Assyrian court that said, I came and I destroyed uh, Israel. And then I had Hezekiah, the king of uh, Judah, circled like a bird in a cage. But I decided to go home. I mean, he's, he says that. He's not going to say, and then uh, their God sent a death angel and killed over 100,000 of our troops. He's not going to say that. That's bad in the archives. You know, here's the thing. When you look at ancient historical sources, it's like Pravda during the Soviet Union. Everything's good. It's all fake news. They always twist everything into looking positive for what they're doing. They won't admit their defeats or their foibles. You read the Old Testament, all of our heroes are people, half the people that are heroes in the Old Testament, we wouldn't even teach, well, let teach Sunday school down the hall there. They're too slimy. You know? But God works through all kinds of flawed raw material. So you've got the divided tribes of Israel. In 722, the northern kingdom falls. In 586, same kind of thing. Multiple prophetic warnings. God saves them from the Assyrians. But in 586, uh, Judah falls and the temple's destroyed. So now the whole nation is taken back to Babylon, which is just a little bit north of early counties. Isn't this ironic? You've got the Jews that started in 2000 B.C. with Abraham, now in 586 and thereafter, for a whole generation, they're out here in Babylon. Uh, Ezekiel and Daniel, those are two books written during that Babylonian captivity. But you know what? Here's the cool thing. we got the Babylonian exile, which took place in three uh, phases. 
Then I've got parallel lines in Deuteronomy 28. Now, Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law, right? Initially, from Moses to the new generation. And he says, look, if you're in the land after God gives it to you and you obey the commandments of the law, not to be saved from hell, but to be in fellowship with God as his covenant nation, I'll bless you. If you don't, I'll discipline you with exceedingly more severe discipline, although I'll warn you with prophets. And that's what Deuteronomy 28 said. So when you read about the Assyrian destruction of the northern kingdom, the Babylonian captivity southern, that's just God being honest to his promises about discipline for disobedience. But here's the thing. God's justice isn't pretty. Always preceded and followed by God's grace. Because Deuteronomy 30 says, hypothetically, Moses is writing this in 1450 B.C. under inspiration. Israel, if you find yourself out of the land and in captivity because of Deuteronomy 28, you've repeatedly over multiple generations rejected submitting to God and His law. If in captivity you call out for me to redeem you, I will redeem you and I'll put you back in the land. So the destruction of the southern kingdom by the Babylonians in the end of the story, and you get to books like... uh, uh, Ezra, uh, Nehemiah, Ezra, uh, Daniel predicts it, uh, book of Esther are taking period during that period where they're returning. And in the same way they went to Babylon three waves, you've got, uh, Zerubbabel comes back from Babylon, rebuilds the temple. Ezra comes back and teaches the word to the people spiritually to get them back in some kind of spiritual shape. And then, uh, Nehemiah rebuilds the walls. I was just talking to somebody recently at CU Duncan. You know, he rebuilds these walls that are in horrible shape. It wasn't a supernatural thing where God snapped his fingers and walls were up. It took him several months to do it, but it was super rapid. It was like super normal. They did it so quickly. But during the early phases of that, they'd build part of the wall. So guess what? Walls are biblical. Okay? Jerusalem had a wall. Why'd they have walls? They didn't believe in God? They needed a wall to keep the bad guys out, right? Anyway, so they're building these walls, and during the first phase of that, everything they would build during the day would be knocked down by insurgents at night. And so they had a big powwow. What are they going to do? You know, God told us to build the wall, but these bad guys keep knocking it down. So basically it says, so we prayed, and we set a guard. It wasn't like we prayed, and so God's going to take care of us. Or we set a guard, but, you know, we don't need God's help now because we got a guard. We prayed, and we set a guard. What do you do when you go on a long trip in your car? Or actually, when you drive to Walmart, you ought to do it. Because the the Walmart parking lot is one of the most dangerous places in this city. You realize that? There's more lusting, there's more coveting over stuff, and people are coveting over parking places than you shake a stick at. That's just me, but that's that's my experience, right? But uh, what should you do? I think you pray before you drive 100 miles to go to Beaumont, Texas, and you buckle your seatbelts. You do both, right? The Bible is very clear. Human responsibility and faith Go hand in hand. So what happens after that? Wow. Let's look at a couple of verses here. Look at Luke 2. You know, after the uh, the last couple books of the Old Testament, the last one is Malachi as a prophet interacting with Israel uh, in the same period of time where they're re- rebuilding the walls under Nehemiah. Go to Luke 2.25. You enter in what's called the silent period. From that point on, there are no more writing prophets. There's no more Old Testament scripture being written, but you do have the rise of the Greeks under the Alexander the Great. They conquer the whole area. They 
Hellenize the area, everything between Macedonia and the Khyber Pass. These people can now speak Greek, which is great because when you write the New Testament, you write in Greek, everybody can read it. Those kind of things. Under a guy named uh, Judas Maccabee, the Jews shook off the Syrian uh, occupation for about 100 years, and then like 64 B.C., the Romans took over. And that's the setting for the New Testament. But look at this. According to my premise here, everything that God's doing with Israel is pointing to the Messiah. And the Old Testament is saying, hey, not just Jews, but Gentiles are sinners and they die, but God's going to send a Savior. And look at the way the Gospel of Luke starts in Luke chapter 2, verse 25. And let's read this with our Old Testament spectacles on us. We begin to conclude. Give me a couple more minutes. I'm not quite done, of course, but look at this. This is in connection right after the birth of baby Jesus. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation, looking for the deliverer promised to Israel, the seed of Abraham that would be the Savior of the world. The Jewish Messiah is the Savior of the world. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it was revealed to Simeon, who's looking for the coming of the promised Savior that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were promised and is the whole theme of the Old Testament, and it was revealed to him by the Holy Spirit, Simeon, that he would not see death. He would not die until he had seen the Lord's Christ. Christ is not a last name. Some people think Joseph Christ, Mary Christ, Virgin Conception, Jesus Christ. Christ is a title. means Messiah, Savior, Anointed One, the one who'd be the Lamb of God who'd pay for the sins of the world. So he's been promised he's going to be able to see in with his eyeballs the promised Savior, the seed uh, of Abraham. And he came in the spirit at a Simeon into the temple. This is the second temple, Zerubbabel built. The first one was built by Solomon, right? And when the parents brought, that is Joseph and Mary, brought in the child Jesus for uh, the purification ritual that's demanded by the law, to carry out for him the custom of the law, that he, Simeon, took him in his arms, blessed God, and said, now, Lord, looking up, Lord, this, this is it. I believe it. This is the Messiah you've been promising. How were people in the Old Testament saved? By obeying the Old Testament law? How in the world could anybody be saved by the Old Testament law when the Old Testament law was given to Israel as a constitution but had to function as a nation state, had nothing to do with salvation? By the works of the law, no flesh should be justified in God's sight. That's Romans 3.20. But So if that's not true, they weren't saved by obeying. Didn't God give them the law? Yeah, but it wasn't given to save. At a salvation level, it was given to show that they couldn't be good enough to be saved. They needed to, to trust in a Savior. But what does that what does that say? All humans die, but what's the promise of the Old Testament? God's sending the Savior. And this guy is totally in tune. Simeon, he says, he, this is it. This is it. Uh, he took him said, now, Lord, looking up at, at God the Father, you're releasing your bondservant to bond. I'm happy to die now. Because I have seen, uh, according to your word, my eyes have seen your salvation, the one who's going to affect your salvation, which you've prepared in the presence of all peoples, not just for Jews, but Gentiles. And he's quoting Old Testament here uh, from Isaiah. The Messiah Jesus would be a light of revelation, not just to Jews, but to Gentiles who never were under the law at all. So the law doesn't save anybody. And the glory of your people, Israel. That is so cool. But it gets even better if that's possible. Drop down to verse 36. And in addition to Simeon hanging out around the Jewish temple at the birth of Jesus, there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. 
There weren't any lost tribes, by the way. The tribes of Asher's right there. She was advanced in years and had lived uh, with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow to the age of 84. And she never left the temple uh, serving day, night and day with fasting and prayers. And at this very moment, she came up, she saw Simeon and the baby Jesus interacting and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of Him, capital H, Jesus, the baby Jesus, the Messiah is here to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. Now, with that kind of notice, wouldn't you think that the leaders in Jerusalem would be excited that this Messiah has finally showed up and want to try to figure out who it was? You know what? Big bureaucracies are invariably corrupt, and they exist to justify their own existence, and that's governmental, that's uh, religious. You've got this huge Jewish bureaucracy uh, that's designed just to continue the status quo, and Jesus the Messiah was a problem for them, and yet, look what happens. Look at Luke 24. This is the day of the resurrection. This is the first Easter day. And everybody's confused about what's going on. I mean, the disciples, even though he told them he's going to be resurrected, they weren't looking for it. They were surprised by it. And here you have the famous situation where you've got uh, these uh, believers who are uh, walking on the road to Emmaus. This is about seven miles outside of Jerusalem. And anyway, the risen Jesus just shows up walking next to these, to, next to these guys. Look at verse 13. Uh, two of the disciples, not the capital A apostles, but believers, were going that very day, the day of the resurrection, to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles outside Jerusalem. And we're talking about all these things that had happened. The arrest and crucifixion of Jesus. They don't want the resurrection yet. Well, they're talking and discussing Jesus himself in his resurrected body, but they don't know who it is approaches and starts walking with them, but their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said, uh, what are you guys talking about? Hey, guys, what are you talking about? Uh, and one of them, called Cle- Cleopas, answered and said, uh, are you the only one in Jerusalem unaware of what, what's been going on? I mean, and, and he said, uh, what things? And they said, uh, the things about Jesus, the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty in, in deed and in word. Is Jesus a prophet? Yeah, prophet, priest, and king, but he's the ultimate prophet. Make it capital P, he's the Savior, Messiah. And how the chief priests, rulers, delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping, we thought, he was going to redeem Israel. And besides all these things, it was the third day since they killed him. But there are some women among us who were at the tomb this morning, and they didn't find his body, and they said they saw a vision of angels he was alive. They saw more than that. They're getting the first report, usually distorted. And it says some of them who were with us, went to the tomb and found it exactly as the woman had said, but him, Jesus, they didn't see. The body's gone. And Jesus, who's walking with them. You got the resur- You couldn't make this up, Jack. You got the resurrected Jesus walking with these guys just outside of the city where all this stuff happened. And he says, I think with a, a kind tone, but kind of a, come on guys, get with the program kind of a tone. Oh foolish men, slow of heart to believe all the prophets, all the way back to Abraham, uh, have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things, the Lamb of God, to die for the sins of the world, and then after that to enter into his glory, and then beginning with Moses, which means not the life of Moses, but the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, all we've covered this morning. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to him to them the things concerning himself in the Scriptures. Okay, It's there. At the end of the uh, rich man and Lazarus deal, uh, the guy says, hey, Lord, send somebody from the afterlife and warn my brothers about this. And what's the answer? Hey, they've got Moses and the prophets. 
they got more than sufficient information to figure out what the deal is if they want it. You know what? We've covered a lot of hard data here, but spirituality isn't about Bible trivia. Just because you can memorize an outline like this and walk through it in 45 minutes isn't necessarily a spiritual feat. It's just an intellectual exercise. You know, God's interested in our heart. Our heart is our mind and our will. Saving faith is not mental assent to Jesus. It's full consent of the will. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. It's on me. It's my fault. I believe that you're the Savior. You did everything necessary to get me to heaven. You died to pay for my sin debt and rose again. And I want you to be my Savior. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become sons of God. The thief on the cross wasn't a thief. He was a murderer and worse. They only crucified uh, murderous or potentially murderous rebels against Roman authority. And what is that murderer on the cross said to Jesus? Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. I'm not a theologian, and I don't know all the verses, but I'm a sinner. It's my fault. I think you're the Savior. You're doing something to save me, and I want you to. And what does Jesus say? I wish you'd talked to me last week, because you've got to go through the catechism, sign a card, quit stuff. What does he say? Today, you'll be with me in paradise. So let me close. And here's the happy ending. All of my messages, especially this one, have a happy ending, because everybody's happy when we're ending them. Uh, take this to heart. Although partial and preliminary, the Old Testament, I mean like Genesis through Malachi, anticipate the fullness and the finality of the person and work of the Jewish Messiah, who's also the Savior of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we skipped over it in my attempt to try to cover the ground, but maybe the most important verse in connection with Abraham, where the whole story starts, is Abraham believed God's promises about all this stuff that's going to happen, including sending the Savior through his loins, as it were. And it was reckoned to him as righteousness. His faith was reckoned as righteousness. Paul hops on that in Romans 4. He says, we're not saved by the law. How could we be saved by the law? Number one, nobody can keep it. Number two, it wasn't given to save. And Christ is the end of the Old Testament law. We're under a whole new covenant. And here's the happy ending of God's program. You know, Paul basically says, that that is spirituality on training wheels, and it's pointing to something. What is both of those? What are both those covenants pointing to? They're pointing to something or someone. Well, who are they pointing to? The Messiah, the Christ. Now, we don't live like that. We're here. We are. We're under what Jesus Himself says at the commencement of the Lord's Supper is the new covenant. Jeremiah thirty-three talks about it. We're not saved by believing promises about a Savior who might come. We're believed in pre- believing the provisions of a Savior who has come and who's promised to come again. And so that's uh, God's program on in two dimensions, okay? And we're privileged to be part of that. Mike Palavis right there. He's got privileges spiritually Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob never had. We're told the angels are enjoying watching this in First Peter because it's so incredible, yet we take it for granted too often. So our invitation this morning is, if you've never trusted in the Jewish Messiah to be your Savior, realize He's the Savior of the world, and you're not so good you don't need Him to save you through faith. You're not so bad you can't have salvation through faith. Right? Uh, for those of us who are believers, spirituality is not about obeying rules. It's about a relationship with somebody who is our Savior and our Lord and our best friend. And when nobody else understands, Jesus does. And that's not just a lyric in a song. That's something you have to camp on. and You have to connect with Him. I think that abiding in Christ is what Jesus says is what that looks like. And that's recognizing and responding from the heart 
to the one Jesus who has saved you. If you're looking for your husband to meet all your needs or your pastor to meet all your needs or the president to meet all your needs, it ain't going to happen. It can't. I, I think most of those people are trying. <laughs> yeah. But Jesus can and will meet your, your, your needs. Uh, but he gets to define those for you, not necessarily all your wants. But your greatest need is you're one heartbeat away from the justice bar of God, but through faith in Christ, and this is my favorite verse probably in the Bible, but to the one who does not work, doesn't try even through the Old Testament law to save themselves, but who believes in him, Christ, who justifies the ungodly, you qualify, don't worry. We all qualify. We're ungodly compared to God. He didn't grant him a curve. That person's faith is reckoned as righteousness. God saved Abraham that way. He saved me as a nine-year-old kid in the back row of a Baptist revival that way. He can save you. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. The promised Savior of the Jewish nation is the Savior of the world. His name is Jesus Christ. And he's at the center of saving faith. He's at the center of abiding faith. And uh, there's a lot of uh, Christians meeting, uh, something like over two billion of us today, to commemorate to worship the Jesus of the Old Testament and of the New Testament, the Savior who gives eternal life to all who trust Him for it. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, help us. Uh, you know, a lot of times we, we talk about uh, Daniel in the lion's den and David in Goliath and the building of the temple under Solomon and, and Noah's Ark and the building of the walls on Nehemiah. And we just we have these little snapshots of individual events in this big macro story that leads directly to the cross. And so forgive us preachers for too often breaking this thing down into a a 10,000 piece jigsaw puzzle and only showing individual pieces without the box top. I pray that a message like this would be like a box top. Be able to think through the big story of the Old Testament and see how it all points to the cross and what a, a wonderful position we're in living between the first and second coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, if anybody's here this morning who's not from the depth of their heart trusted Jesus Christ alone for for salvation based on who He is and what He's done and His promises to them, open their eyes to see uh, that you might be glorified in that, their salvation. Uh, for, for many of us, we are believers. Help us to recenter on our, our Lord Jesus Christ as our purpose uh, for living, the lens through which we see everything, and the one who uh, is the lover of our souls. And let it fill us with joy despite the, the difficulties. And I know some, there are people here today that are facing really difficult crises. Some of us are, are in a much more tranquil place, and we're thankful for that. But we know that uh, just about every one of us is either in a crisis, just coming out of a crisis, or just about to go into a crisis. And yet help us through the eyes of faith to shrink down our earthly crises and realize just like Joshua and Caleb did, that the enemies that are allowed in our promised land our quest for a victorious spiritual life, our enemies, with your help, we can beat. And they don't have to destroy us, destroy our faith or destroy our integrity. And so strengthen us with that resolve. And let it be a relational thing, not just uh, behavior modification, that your spirit might transform those you've regenerated in powerful ways. And we pray that for our church family and for all the believers in Duncan at the many churches this morning that are preaching the gospel and all over this planet of every color, country, and culture. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.